Let me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never gonna happen. I don't know if this is gonna be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a hand of cards and like you have to do the best with what, what you have. Someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better rap. This is No Big Deal, a sales podcast. Welcome back to another episode of No Big Deal with Jack Fox and Jack Nico, and we are very excited to have Francis Arville on our podcast today. Francis, a bit of background about her. She has now spent a decade in sales. She cut her teeth at Velocity EHS on the sales floor doing hundreds of dials a day in what did you describe? Proper boiler room setting, Francis. She then moved over to G2, where the deal we're going to be talking about today was eight times the average order value and was their first largest deal at G2. If you've not heard of G2 before, they are a B2B review site for software technology, similar to TripAdvisor, which I'm sure you've heard of before. And the deal in question was to a financial services company. Francis, thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thank you both for having me. And I think you said it better than I did earlier. Instead of Boiler Room, I think you used Wolf of Wall Street. Sales pit. Sales world I grew up in. Is there anything that you'd add to that, Francis? Anything that we missed from your bio? That was, I mean, you kind of hit the you kind of hit the nail there. Got to see G2 through Series B, Series C, Series D, when it was just a Chicago office and now having five, six global offices, as well as the beautiful one that I helped build here in London. So it's been an amazing ride. Yeah, do you know what? Credit to you, actually, because now when I think about G2, I think of it as like a big global brand that has always been around. Yeah, no. I mean, it's an incredible story and everybody that comes out of there is just super smart and super incredible. And I think the beauty with the story that we're going to t tell today, Francis, and me and Jack have been on a similar journey at Salesloft is this would have been a monumental deal for G2 at the time, knowing that you could do deals that were eight times the average order value. So I think, you know, Jack, you always ask great starting questions. So I'll hand over to you. Yeah, this is what we, we like to ask, because this would have been a massive watershed moment for the business, but also... Francis, having joined the company and like it was a small business, what did the deal mean for you outside of work or outside of just closing a big contract? Was there like any sort of impact it had on your home life, private life or your career outside of G2? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we're all the same in that we all got into sales because we're coin operated. I will do <laughs> anything for a dollar or at least close to it. No. Uh, and <laughs> I knew that you know, if I was having a 600K quota in front of me and we were only selling these six to 12K deals annually, like it was going to be a slog to get there in, in a year's time, right? You can do the math, 600 divided by 10, 12K, it's going to take a while. So it was nice to be able to really break through in a category financial space that was pretty, pretty early days at G2. We were always doing well within like the MarTech, sales tech, HR tech categories, but financial category was 
was definitely pretty still kept under lock and key. Those companies were always still pretty in bed with the likes of Gartner and Forrester and IDC. So to break into like the financial category, not only was super lucrative for me and helping me get closer to my quota, get me a better commission check, but then also was a breakthrough moment for G2 and opening themselves up to additional categories and additional verticals that they hadn't been doing super well with during those early days at G2. Great. And I think this is a good place to start. Like financial services was somewhere that the business had outlined that they wanted to get into or fintech. How did you go about prospecting into this account where presumably you didn't have a huge amount of customer stories to be able to go and share? Yeah, I think one thing, again, what I'm super grateful for Velocity EHS, where I was prior to G2, is like we were just a very, very, very heavy, heavy activity-centric culture from the get-go. It's where I think every early early salesperson should start their career, 100 dials a day, that sort of environment. So yeah, back at G2, we were definitely still picking up the phone, cold calling, you know, every phone number that we could see on a website using all the tools, right? The Cognizant, the Clearbit, the Zoom info, anything that we could get, like the phone calls were super key. And interestingly enough, I was able to cold call somebody into demand gen and he ended up picking up the phone. And luckily I've made a hundred cold calls that day prior to that one. So I was able to get him in through the door using the idea of first mover's advantage right? So this was a company in a category that G2 hadn't done really well at. So really painting this picture of first mover's advantage. And then I made sure to not only set up that initial demo meeting with him, but being able to make sure that he was also inviting one additional stakeholder into the conversation as well, especially because I got the sense that he was pretty cagey on the call at the beginning and pretty skeptical, which rightfully so he should be. G2 hadn't really touched too much of the financial sector. So yeah, super excited that a cold call was able to get me through the door, but even more excited that I was also able to get additional stakeholders since I knew that this was a skeptic from the get-go. Were you a big cold caller? I was, for sure. At, At MSDS Online, not only did we have things like you know, they were tracking our phone calls, like not just in Salesforce, you couldn't fake tasks. They were actually tracking the physical phone to make sure that you were dialing and connecting. And then a lot of our spiffs or awards would be based off of, you know, how many meetings can you get on the phone rather than just like email or LinkedIn, especially because prior to G2, we were selling into organizations that historically didn't have computers. Interestingly enough, we were selling SaaS, but the companies we were selling into was manufacturing, healthcare, like like waterworks, government, like government plumbing, things like that. So those types of personas typically didn't have computers. So yeah, cold calling was... Yeah. It was ingrained in me early on. Do you know what's funny about that is at my old at my old recruitment agency where we where I first started, similar sales pit. There used to be a fifty pound cash prize a day for whoever made the most cold calls, and it was like pinned onto the whiteboard every day by the CEO. I thought that was great. And at the time, I was like, "Oh my god, fifty quid! I'm going to be rich." Now I look back on it, I'm like, "Yeah, that was such a great incentive." Well, it's yeah. kind of great in that. So. I guess fast forward until when I started leading the team at G2, I got lucky in that I had reps that were super excited by the idea of cold calling too. And two of my reps, Monty Robbins and Max Reichenberg, started running away and even running their own spiffs amongst each other without oh, my nice. help. 
in order to get that cold calling culture back, which was nice because a lot of that was also post-COVID when people were so used to being remote. Yeah, I had a similar thing over a friend of a friend at my old company. And it was like whoever, it was every day we had an activity challenge and then every week we had an activity challenge and whoever had the most activities by the end of the week one I think it was maybe like 100 quid cash and everybody was in the pub and me and him were sat in the office at like seven o'clock on the Friday like I don't know why I don't know what possessed us to do this but just carried on making calls to all of our customers and our customers were like mate it's 7 p.m on Friday stop calling me I was like yeah I know there's 100 quid in it anyway I was gonna say that that's missed that's missing from today's outbound demand gen culture I think not to throw shade on people in demand gen culture, but I do think that is missing that that cold call culture part of it just opens far more doors. And especially the people that we sell to, Jack, that they want to be called because they're salespeople. Yeah, I think that email has been overdone now, just generally in the sales industry. There are so many, us being one that's selling one, sell cadencing, sequencing platforms out there that can be used as sales reps to send mass market automated emails. Funnily mm. enough, I was at a conference the other week with a like a VC and he he said eight years ago, he used to get three emails a day. Now he gets a hundred. He's like, Madness. I'm never going to look through these. Like, so it's it's funny that, you know, during COVID, we were using Vidyard and probably emails really good, handcrafting personalized emails. I definitely think we're shifting towards phone and LinkedIn being the challenges. But again, yeah. the industry waves, doesn't it? Like it just yeah, waves right. up and down, up and down, like the phone stopped, email back, and it will just keep revolving. One thing, though, to go back to the deal, Francis, that I loved was when you book that initial meeting, you were already trying to multi-thread by getting another stakeholder holder on that call how what are your tips to frame that in a successful way so one get multi-threaded as early as you can like work with your bdr work with your inbound marketing team in order to make sure that you're hitting up as many personas earlier on because the longer and further into the sales cycle that you're waiting to try to get additional stakeholders the more difficult it's going to be right because at that point your point of contact is already feeling like the champion. They're already feeling like they're owning this relationship. So they're going to now become this gatekeeper that they didn't think or try to be at the beginning. But now all of a sudden they're holding on to this relationship with dear life. So trying to get in as early, as early, as early as you can and inviting additional people as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is hopefully you're doing your research, you're using LinkedIn. So it would be nice if you can say to your prospect, hey, also notice that, you know, Jack Smith or, you know, Sarah Jane is also in your department and handles XYZ, you know, part of the organization. Typically that type of persona uses G2 or uses whatever software product you're selling in this kind of way, like, would they find this interesting on the next call? I think a lot of AEs assume that prospects know how to buy. The job of the AE is educating the prospect, not only on the product, but also how to buy in your product and working through that process. My experience with that early, early on in my career was that I was too shy. So I was like, I've already got this one person to say yes. I don't want another person. I don't want to have to ask for another person to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not alone. No, no. And that's not a good thing. And also, it, it, in this instance, did the person say yes? I'll bring that other person along. Yeah. Don't uh, ask, you don't get. Oh, I mean, agreed. And the same could be asked for, right? Salaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or 
a date, like all, all, all of the things. But yeah, he was able to invite somebody in product marketing, which was a persona that we didn't typically target and sell into. And interestingly enough, it ended up being that product marketer rather than the demand gen person that I initially cold call that ended up being like the true champion decision maker and ended up buying. And why was that? So one thing, I think the person, the demand gen person that I'd reached out to initially, right, was skeptical from the beginning. Like I'm very lucky and very fortunate that he was willing to have that first demo with me. But even during that whole conversation, even the one where he invited his counterpart, it felt like he was not interested in answering any of the questions that I had. He was very much like, no, 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 you tell me what G2 is. Like wanted me to show everything without me at all understanding anything about their business. He just was a very difficult person to navigate. But luckily, because I had this other person that he had invited, then even after that first call with the both of them, then I was able to reach out to his counterpart individually and understand from the counterpart, like, what do they care about? What do they find interesting? And luckily for me, that person ended up being far more open and being way more available to share the pains that they had. And I was able to identify that G2 actually works a lot better within that product marketing persona within this company than demand gen. And on that, did you, from just from like, I want to know how you tactically moved around from here on for the deal. Did you keep the other demand gen person in the loop? Were you still getting sent them updates or were you like, right, this is my guy now? CC'd at the beginning, but then luckily my prospect and the product marketer ended up just being very open, communicative, sometimes not CCing the dem gen person. And I realized while yes, in oftentimes it is like what I had just said two minutes ago, it's super important to be multi-threaded. I think there's also a point where it's also like, well, you don't want too many chefs in the kitchen too. Like how many deals have we all lost over the years because there were too many chefs in the kitchen. So this was a great example of the fact that I was able to get multi-threaded early, but then that also helped me identify the real person that would end up finding value in G2. And then I was able to really focus in on this one person that I knew had budget had the ability to sign off, had the ability to implement, had the ability to onboard and really run away with the deal. You know what? The longer I've been in sales, the more I'm starting to realize that that component is far more important than any other part of your checklist. Like I used to obsess over product market fit. I used to obsess over the fact that the products will be so perfect for this outcome and that outcome. And this is desperately what they're trying to achieve. And this is where it's going to go. And if only I can get them to understand that. And if I can find the right person to listen to me, then I can convey that message. First and foremost, you need to find a person who also believes that even if the product market fit isn't that great, or sorry, the, the customer fit isn't that great, or the outcomes aren't going to be as like enormous as you might hope. If you've got somebody like you just described there, far more likely to close the deal. Who gives a shit, right? That's the yeah, I didn't want to like, say it like that. Gives that a is shit. so true. Exactly. And, and Francis, in this point, you know, at G2 at the time, you were the, you were disrupting a very traditional industry of people using, you know, analysts with Forrester and everyone else in, in that category. When you had that hook with this person that thought, this is great. I'm definitely want to do that. How did you partner with them to go and sell this business case internally with as well? You didn't have a huge number of customer stories to fall back on. So 
This I'm, I'm stealing from Seismic, great company. They actually put together a really great press release that I ended up using for the entire five and a half years that I was at G2. The way they described G2 early, early days was that Gartner, Forrester, IDC, they were like the Academy Awards or the BAFTAs, right? Like you don't really know who makes up these tiny groups, but they're super, everyone wants to be, you know, included and wants one of these awards. Whereas G2 is like the People's Choice Awards, right? Mm -hmm. It's coming from the people that are actually watching the movies. And in this case, actually using the product. So I was really able to explain to this person, hey, obviously you're looking great on, on Gartner. You're looking great on Forrester. You have a ton of great reports that you're already included in, but let's be real. All your other competitors within that financial closed space are also getting the same accolades. They're in the same reports. Like, how are you actually differentiating? And right, this is very early days. G2 as a whole, even in the categories that we were doing well in, didn't have a ton of reviews. The website was maybe getting half a million hits a month, whereas now we're getting north of 8 million to the website every single month. So very, very early days. So it was really explaining to this person who obviously, again, is a product marketer, so cares about representation, cares about what the product looks like from a marketing standpoint, really bought into this idea of, oh, okay, I can actually get first movers advantage within this other awards type website and, you know, user generated feedback type website that isn't super crowded yet, but is ultimately going to help us because of the fact that it's all coming from user generated feedback. Great. Like that seems awesome. And I can still license reports very similar to like a Gartner or Forrester. Great. But at least I can actually point to saying, hey, it's all these great people that are using the product that are saying these great things, not necessarily these analysts that I think most people know are commonly paid for in terms of how to get, you know, looking really nice on those reports. And I think the perfect thing that you had there, Francis, was you had almost a personal win for the champion to be like, I'm going to be the first mover in this space to do this in my market, which probably then obviously helped you in the deal. Totally. I think it was one of my first bosses that said it. It was just like, people don't want to be sold to. They like to buy. This was like a great example of this, right? This person really bought into this idea rather than feeling like I was selling him something and shoving, you know, this idea of reports down down his throat. The other thing there as well is you've just got a great story. I was totally bought into that analogy about the People's Choice Award. I was like running away a bit in my own head. That makes such a difference. Yeah, it was a great press release that seismic put out like early days of g2 and i use it in every pitch moving forward so yeah yeah <laughs> when i first started here i used to say to jack like do we have sto what stories can we tell like we all have our own story that we tell about how we use our product etc etc it's like we need some customer stories and jack i still tell this story to this day i don't even know if it's true we sell cadences they're like 20 steps long and i still say to customers friend a colleague of mine yesterday closed a deal that he opened on the 18th step of a 20 step cadence this week and i'm like that's what your reps are missing out on i don't even know if that's true jack but i still say it about you yeah yeah that that, that is true yeah that's a good <laughs> yeah. story i was like on step 16 of a cadence with a vp of sales and i got them on that last step and they were like mate what do you want and i was like okay i've been really persistent because of this this product that i'm selling and he was like okay fair enough i'll have a demo and they ended up buying like what was a fairly lot uh, definitely bigger than average order value at the time 
like three I weeks think, later. I just think as long as we can go around and collect these types of stories that we can make our products seem more real life or more tangible or more analogous to our customers, like life is just so much easier than actually just trying to explain like what it is, is it's a cadence. And that means that it's a step by like, that's just bullshit. No one cares. Okay, this is like a great, we're in, I feel like we're in the meat of the deal now in the middle of it. And this is kind of where it tends to be, the two things either happen here. You either get an amazing, well, I'm going to use the word mobilizer now because I love that. You get an amazing mobilizer who just does some of the work for you or things tend to go a little bit static and you go into a bit of a quiet period and you kind of, this is when you start to get anxious that the deal's never going to happen. Which kind of, which way did you, or, or you did something amazing and helped take the deal through to the final stages, which is inevitably where it gets closed. Whereabouts did you go from here? Did you have someone on the hand to help? Did it go quiet? Or did you throw a, a Hail Mary to make it work? I think I got a little bit nervous around like the proposal part because of the fact that one, the solution that we were trying to pitch was not necessarily the best, to your point earlier, Jack Fox. The whole like product market fit. So with G2, a lot of a company's success within the platform is, can they get reviews? And some of the time, the solutions that we're selling really only work well if you already have reviews, and this company didn't. So to not only explain to this person, hey, come join this website that you didn't know about before I cold called you, and buy into this company that is literally trying to compete with Gartners and Foresters and IDCs that have already made their name for decades and decades, but you now have to do upfront work in building reviews first in order to be successful. Like that's just like a lot, right? To tell a prospect rather than a turnkey solution that says, hey, give me your money and we'll give you this, right? So there's just like a lot of work that they have to do prior. So one thing that was helpful was, right, creating a mutual success plan and being able to put together dates and being able to ensure that while my prospect was super excited, I knew that he would be interested in implementation and onboarding, that he also had his own little army or own little minions to help him in terms of like the review gathering process and all these little other things that we would need in order to enable him with some of the reports that he was ultimately licensing. We needed to make sure that he also had a plan in terms of how he was going to use these reports once he ended up licensing and purchasing them. So I wanted to make sure that he was set up for success way past him, you know, signing off on a contract and paying us money and me disappearing, right? I wanted to make sure that he was set up for success, not only six months after that, but understanding, hey, why would you also renew with G2 a year from now? That was super key too. Not just why do you want to buy, but in a year's time, let's figure out now why you would actually renew. So once I knew all those things, then I was actually able to start formalizing this proposal that I was pretty nervous about. Because again, like I said earlier, I was typically selling six to 12K deals at that point, whereas in my mind, I knew that I was going to put together a proposal with three options of 30K, 45K, and 60K. So that was pretty nerve wracking. Again, being a new category for G2, them not having reviews, them being in a more traditional analyst type relationships that they were more familiar with. I suppose when you were preparing that proposal, were you thinking, this is stupid, they're going to laugh at me at this? Or had they done their own research to figure out what other customers were 
were paying? So they didn't necessarily do research to figure out what other customers were paying because they all, they, I was always very upfront with the fact that they were going to be very new to this mm. category. So anybody else that they would have reached out to would be companies in their space that they knew were not customers. So in a weird way, that kind of helped the fact that there were no other customers or competitors that they would have called. But in terms of the, will they laugh at me? hundred percent. Not because I had a feeling of what they thought the cost should be, but more so because historically I know what I had been selling at, which also goes back to kind of the immaturity of the salesperson that I was at that point. It's not so much, right? Like 10K, 100K, a million, all of those are just dollars, but what is the actual value to that customer? And then it goes back to, you know, that mutual success plan that you put together. Like, what is the value that they saw? Why would they actually renew? Those are why all those things are super important way before putting those actual proposals with dollar values in front of them. And did you do anything in particular when you presented the three proposals to kind of lead them down the garden path towards one of them? So the key thing was understanding, one, is G2 something that you plan on replacing with something that you guys currently have? Or is it going to be an addition to or a complement to something that you mm -hmm. already have? That's super key. Two, understanding. Why? The Sorry, can I just go to ask there? Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. So can't speak for sales after, you know, all salespeople organizations, but for me and my sales cycles, it was always important whether I was selling at Velocity, whether I was selling at G2, regardless of what offering we were selling at, it was always important for me to understand, okay, do you plan on ripping and replacing something you already have? As in, is something not working? Are you guys up for renewal? Are you looking for a cheaper option? Are you looking for a better option? You know, are you replacing something? And then we'll dig into why you're replacing that. Or is it to complement something? So for example, lots of us use Salesforce. Typically we like to add, you know, Gong or, you know, a marketing automation tool. And ideally it would integrate right with Salesforce. So whatever additional products that you're buying on top of Salesforce would be a compliment. So anytime I'm pitching something, I ultimately want to understand, again, are we trying to replace what you currently have, or are we trying to complement and make your life better with the tech stack that you already have? And does that come out in the proposal as well then? Yes. Because then as I'm understanding, is this a rip and replace or a compliment? and I'm understanding why would you renew in a year's time, then prior to showing the proposal, I'm going to reiterate those things. Okay. And then I'll be able to use this information to frame why I have these three solutions and these three options. Love and it. then ultimately that's going to help them see the value. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll buy, but at least they'll have that full understanding of, oh, okay, this is why mm -hmm. X costs 30K, or this is why X costs 60K. Mm -hmm. Why you, why now, why ask business case proposal on the other end? Exactly. And which one did they go for? The middle one? What was yep. that one? Love it. Well played. Well postured. Okay, nice. And did you do anything did you do anything at this moment that stands out to you as you that you're particularly proud of at this point of the deal to help it move forward to the closing stages that you think, yeah, I did that pretty well there? I think all the way up until that point, like it was I, I really made a point to like slow down the sales process as well. I think that was super key. While I 
had cold called that initial dem gen person. And I worked very closely with the product marketer within the sales cycle. I was lucky in that in, I think the sales cycle was maybe about seven or eight calls across maybe six weeks. There were other people on some of those calls. And I really, really made sure to involve everybody within those conversations and take a breath if anytime somebody asked me a question and really think about how, you know, could they rephrase the question and really could they, could I get a second or third layer question from them before responding right away? Because I really wanted to make sure that I was understanding everything that they cared about and all the pains they had, especially again, because this financial close category was super new to G2. And I really just wanted to make sure that I didn't misstep anything. So to answer your question, I think the thing I'm the most proud of is the fact that I really, really, really slowed down the sales cycle when I think most reps would have tried to speed it up, seeing all these green lights from that product marketer. And can I just ask you, there's going to be people listening who are going to be doing the exact opposite to that. And I'm one of them. Have you got any sort of practical advice of in the moment or when you're receiving an email, if you're on a call with a customer in a meeting, anything that you can that you did then or that you do now? a bit more experience that helps you to slow things down there? Biggest advice that I have, and I think the best way to learn is actually by listening to the calls that you've already done, is one thing that I actually tell my reps to is once they've got a couple calls under their belt during onboarding, is go listen to your calls and then write down all the questions that you wish you asked in the calls. And then on the flip side, when you're hearing the prospect speak or when the prospect asks you a question, try to write down a question that you wish you asked or further clarification on prior to you responding right away. I think that will be super huge in them being able to be more prepared for the upcoming calls. Because it's really hard to just say like, this is what you should do on the call because right, your heart's racing, da, 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 da. But if you can go back and learn from your mistakes prior, That'll help you work that muscle for those upcoming meetings that you'll have in the future. Jack, how much do our episodes just like ebb with the same message? I've actually, I wrote this down as you were saying that. I was like, we need to go back and audit our episodes and work out what the common threads are because that is a major one. Back to the calls and go back to basics. Like when you're preparing for your next meeting, listen to the calls. What questions have you missed out? What questions should you have asked? And with what Ben said on like, Scott, sorry, said on another episode, like upfront contract with a buyer at the end of the call being like, I'm going to ask you a few questions to do with decision process or paper process because that's where I'm missing. And it helps with... It helps with just everyday conversation with the customer after a while with customers. You start to think like, I'm not flustered anymore because I feel as though I've watched this call happen before with a previous customer. I know that mistake is if I go down this avenue and just answer your question and say, yeah, yeah, yeah let's move on. Whereas if I stop and say, why did you ask that? Or stop for a second and just go into that in a bit more detail, you end up finding far more important truth than just like getting on with a question and moving on to the next stage of the conversation. Love it. That's like a really, really actionable point that I that I love. And that takes a lot of time and composure and a lot of energy and a lot of consistency. And you can't rush that. You can't just be good at that after a year in sales. It takes like five, 10 years before you can be calm enough and composed in the face of the customer to be able to relax into those moments. And do you know what's interesting? I think so many, sorry, Francis, that so many calls I listen back to, I'm like, 
why did you not ask that question? Such an obvious question to ask. Even when we listen back to the podcast, I'm like, why didn't we ask that question? We should have let them down that route. But yeah. Right. Well, this podcast is about closing big deals. So tell us, how did you close the big deal at the end? So shared the three solutions, which so it's awesome that he ended up picking the middle one, right? Between a 30, 45 and 60K deal. At that point, again, my average, most of the deals coming through G2 were like six to 12K range. 20K would be a bluebird, right? So it was awesome that he was able to nail that 45K deal. And then <clears throat> a couple of days later, I'm right you're now nervous. You're like, I don't know, like he, he said yes, but is it really going to come in? We had that last call and he asked hey, do you, do you guys have flexibility? And I think at that point, it was very common for reps to be like, yes, 20%, <laughs> done, sure. Anything to get it across the finish line. I just asked him, I was like, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about what that means in terms of flexibility? Damn, um, nice. Well, right, I wanted him to explain that rather than me coming up with it. And he ended up sharing the fact that he literally had a budget number of 42k you know left for that h1 and that if he had to ask for anything more it would have to go up to additional approval longer sales cycle things like that but if he could get it into 42 then that would be great and at that point i was like okay i'll have to get approval from there all right like i was pretty new i had never sold anything more than you know 20 or so K and the average deal being six to 10, I was able to share this all with our VP and it ended up making sense. And it was just really nice because I knew that in the back of my head, most of the reps, right. Would have, we knew that most of the discounts were coming in at that 20% range. And if I offered that up earlier on, I would have been dropping my pants way earlier. So it was really nice to just, again, like slow it down early on and just ask cool. Like, what does that even mean for you? Mm. And have him try to explain. And then I got that additional context that actually had to do with budget. And he wasn't just asking just to be a dick or asking just to ask. And then again, I got to save some ACV in my pocket as well. Awesome. Great. Good tip. Challenge the buyer on when they need the discount and stay firm in the deal and don't give a discount based on what you think is going to be right at that price. Well, we're towards the end of the deal now and we, you've closed it. Well done. Congrats. Great. Probably bang top leaderboard at G2 at the time. These are like a couple of closing questions that me and Jack really like asking. The first of which is what what skill makes you great? For me, I think the big one is I'm really okay with sounding silly on a phone, on the phone or not knowing what the answer is to something and telling a prospect, hey, I'll come back to you. I think when I got into management, I ended up working with my reps very similar into the way that I work with prospects, telling people, hey, these are the things that I do well, here are the things I don't do so well. So just being super, super honest and open with a prospect very, very early on, I think is just super key, builds trust, strong foundation, and again, all of that is the same thing that you need for your management as well. Composure seems to be like a common thread throughout this. You seem to be able to have very like a low steady. pulse rate. Yeah, steady yeah, throughout. And then the next one is, do you have a favorite sales story from your last 10 years? Can you be a little bit more specific? Like, like, like so for example, um, President's just, Club or? Yeah, like a feeling. Things, yeah. Did you ever have like a feeling at the time where you thought, 
this is wicked. Yeah, like everybody in the office on the Friday or the last day of the quarter and there's loads of contracts coming in and, you know, Jack's drinking tequila straight out of the bowl. That's every day. Yeah, yeah. I will say, so the last 10 years, right, sales is like ups and downs. Like the highs are so high and the lows are so low. But I think for me, and I felt this even those first days at MSDS Online is I always knew that even on my worst day in sales, like this is like what I want to be doing. Like this is the kind of pain and this is the kind of suffering that I want to experience, which was like, an, that's like a really, really, like I don't remember the exact day that it happened, but I thought that was like a big aha moment for me was when mm-hmm. I was like, okay, it's one thing to like love what you're doing when it's great. But if you're like, all right, even the pain and the suffering, I'm good with this. Like that's a pretty powerful feeling. Yeah, I love that. Because I think we've all probably had that moment where you're like, I don't, this isn't a bad thing that I want to avoid. I'm happy to carry on doing this. Yeah, I love that. The highs are still, I still want the highs, but. Yeah, I didn't come for the razor blades. I came for the champagne. Yeah. Well, I'm okay with the razor blades. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on, Francis. Really enjoyed that. Definitely. I've learned a few things I'm going to take into my deals and sales process. Yeah, for real. My, My key takeaways there are the power of the story that you create especially when you're new on the block and and also you know once you get that watershed moment things become a lot a lot easier for the rest of the team so that's the motivating driving factor appreciate it it's lovely to meet you francis and thanks so much for giving us time also i just want to say i love your top corp shout out corp one day <laughs> people will be wearing our tops jack yeah no big deal <laughs>